One of my favourite songs, I uh, got it off my dad, is called El Condor Paso, If I Could, uh, by Simon and Garfunkel. And the whole song is a series of I'd rather something than something else, you know, so you know it probably is. I'd rather be a sparrow than a snail. I'd rather be a forest than a street. I'd rather be a hammer than a nail. And I think in most of those cases, or most of those things, we would agree, wouldn't we? But in the book we're looking at together, Paul, the Apostle Paul, not Paul Simon, uh, is writing to a group who have got this mixed up a little bit. When faced with the choice, would you rather be a precious son or an imprisoned slave, they've chosen slave over son. They've chosen dishwasher over daughter. They've chosen law over liberty. Paul had come to this area of modern-day Turkey during his first missionary trip. The people had heard the gospel and believed. Many people from a non-Jewish background. And then Paul had left, and then probably in only a matter of months, false teachers had come in, claiming to be genuine believers, possibly claiming to come from the Apostle James in Jerusalem. And they claimed to have a fuller, more correct gospel than the Apostle Paul. One that involved the men being circumcised, and all of them keeping Jewish food laws and ceremonies. In fact, the whole Old Testament law as given. To become a Christian, they said, you must become a Jew and follow Moses. But this went directly against what Paul had said. That Jews and non-Jews alike could come into the kingdom of God without being obliged to keep the whole Jewish law. And this really matters. Because for us as well, there's more at stake here than bacon sandwiches and, and avoiding operations on your unmentionables. Paul has been arguing that the very gospel that saves us is at stake. That what these people have brought in is not another version of the gospel, but another gospel altogether. In other words, a false gospel that will not save you. If you follow this, says Paul, you will end up in hell. And yet this stuff was being taught in churches in Galatia from the front. And more than that, they appealed to the Bible for their evidence. They appealed to other people who were teaching the same thing. <coughs> now that should give us cause for concern, shouldn't it? And make us sit up. These guys didn't come with a big sign saying false teacher. You know, didn't wear a t-shirt with it on. Actually, they came in saying, well, we're from the apostles and we're here to teach you the Bible. And you sort of think, well, hang on, that's what we want, isn't it? Good apostolic Bible teaching. And yet Paul says it was anything but. Paul in chapter 1 says that those teaching these things should be anathema, a curse, sent to hell. This is not a wishy-washy letter that we're looking at this morning. Why? Because Paul cares about these people. He cares enough to tell them the truth, something that the false teachers were not prepared to do. He cares enough to risk being made a target for these false teachers by calling them out for what they are. And that is what Paul has been doing throughout the letter so far. When we finished off last time, Paul was reminding them that they had previously been slaves to the laws and rules and systems of this world, but now Christ had set them free and made them sons of God, children of Abraham, heirs of the promise. And now he reminds them how that happened. And so our first point this morning, weak preachers, verses 12 to 15. Let me just read that to you again. 
Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. If there's one thing that I've learned from watching superhero movies with my boys, is that origin stories matter. How did they get there? What made them as they are? What's their backstory? Well, throughout the book of Galatians, Paul is reminding them of their origin story. Paul had come and preached the gospel in the churches of Galatia. And they welcomed him with open arms. They welcomed him even though he was ill. We'll come back to that in a minute. But he pleads with them to become like him. That's how he starts. Just as he became like them. He cared for them so much that when he went there, he became like them. We know that that's Paul's practice wherever he went. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul, when he was there, lived like a Galatian. That's what he was doing. He became like them. He would have done what they did, lived as they did, with the Gentiles living as a Gentile, which most of them were. And now he pleads with them to care for him so much that they become like him, (laughs) both in their emotions and affections towards him, but also in their position towards the law. Don't go along with those false teachers, pleads Paul. Don't be like them, be like me. When Paul came to them, they did him no harm. On the contrary, they cared for him. So why won't they do so now? And to remind them of this, he reminds them of this story, how they began. Paul had come to them because of a bodily ailment, it says. And people have suggested all sorts of things over the years. Malaria, epilepsy. It could just have been a cold, really, for all we know. But most likely it's an issue with his eyes. That would make more sense of verse 15. Gouging out your eyes and giving them to someone is is certainly an expression of incredible devotion to somebody. And we do have phrases in English like, you know, I give my right eye to be able to help you. But it would make a lot more sense if the problem were actually with his eyes. Something that had flares up while he was in the area. There are other hints that this is the issue. Paul uses other people to write his letters. And when he does, he writes uh, in large letters, as he mentions in chapter 6. When he meets with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the effect is that he's blinded. When he's healed, we're told that something like scales falls from his eyes. It sounds more than just a sort of simple blindness. And you sort of left this impression that he could have been quite a clumsy person. I mean, would you take someone seriously if they stood up to preach and they couldn't quite find the pulpit or they stumbled over the chairs or stood up facing the wrong direction? You'd think it was more like Mr. Magoo, wouldn't you, than the message from God. But seemingly, whatever the problem Paul had had, it meant that he had to stay in Galatia for a while. And that was good for the Galatians. 
And we're told that they didn't scorn or despise him. They didn't make fun or mock him. They received him as they would an angel of God. As though Jesus Christ himself had come to preach to them. You know, it's easy to mock preachers for foibles and weaknesses, isn't it? To dismiss the message because of the way the preacher worded something, or because of what they were wearing, or because they stumbled over a part of the talk. But when we do that, we forget what we're hearing. The very word of God. Brought by imperfect, weak, and unimpressive messengers. That's God's way. So forgive me if my hair's not quite right this morning, or if I have spots, or my clothes aren't perfectly ironed, or forgive me if my voice cracks at points, or I stumble over a line. But that is God's way. God's messengers are weak and imperfect people, preaching to other weak and imperfect people, and pointing them to Christ. And the Galatians, at first, they got that. It was revealed to them from above, and they were blessed by the preaching of Paul. They experienced the power of the gospel, despite the weak and burdensome delivery. And they were blessed. But where is that blessedness now, asked Paul. You received me as an angel, and now you're treating my message as garbage. You've moved on from the message, and adopted a gospel that is no gospel. One that needs something more than faith in Christ's sacrifice to be saved, that requires to become Jewish, circumcised, and keep the Old Testament law as it was given. What's made the difference, says Paul? Well, we know, don't we? These false teachers have slipped into the church in Galatia. And so he addresses them. So our second point, selfish creeps, verses 16 to 18. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Paul asked them a rhetorical question. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? There's a wonderful proverb in the book of Proverbs that says this. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, that an enemy multiplies kisses. Paul is telling them hard truths. He's pulling them up sharp. Not because he's their enemy, far from it, but because he's their friend, their brother. He cares enough to wound them for their good. The false teachers, on the other hand, are the opposite. They flatter. They make much of them. They multiply kisses. They're they're creeps. We're warned in the New Testament to avoid people like this, these smooth talkers. Possibly talking of the same group, Paul writes in Romans 16, For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Do you see there? They compliment, they flatter to get the Galatians on side. But they don't really care about the Galatians. They only really care about themselves. They flatter that they might be flattered. They make much of that they may be made much of by them. They shut them out of their Old Testament law-keeping clique so that the Galatians might flatter them to try and get into it. They want a following of followers, a crowd of crawlers, a set of sycophants. 
who look at them and go, oh, wow, they're so amazing, they're so godly. The heresies change over time, don't they? But the methods don't. Cults and unhealthy churches often work this way, don't they? One person or a small clique at the centre who must be appeased or flattered to be part of the proper church. No critique or criticism of that person or clique allowed or you're sidelined or encouraged to leave. It's all smiles and nice things from the front, but in reality it's a power play. Sometimes that group is around the pastor. We've seen that recently in headlines in Christian newspapers, where pastors have permitted only yes-men and women into a sort of inner circle of church life, often separate from the elected or appointed elders of the church. The pastor controls everything through subtle manipulation, and the most important thing there is to be in that pastor's favour, to be one of his favourites. But it can also happen uh, when a situation arises around somebody other than the pastor in the church. Often another elder or prominent figure in the church who holds a particular view or theology different from the pastor or the church as a whole. They end up forming a sort of church within a church <coughs> and they're often actively seeking to get people on side with them so they can challenge the pastor or the other elders. And that seems to be more what's happening in Galatia. Over time, the danger is that they can begin to take over the church. They flatter to gain access to responsibilities in church. Then when they've got them, you need to flatter them to get access to what they control. You see, there are two kinds of people who want to lead meetings, write bulletins, run youth work, book speakers, do all those sorts of things. One who wants to serve the church, and the other kind who wants to subvert the church. The problem is that the second kind, they're often keener, aren't they? They're zealous for flattery and followers, but not for service and fellow believers. They will flatter and grease up and sweet talk whoever if it means that they can gain control. But Paul won't play that game. He tells them the truth, even if it hurts them. Now, does that mean that we need to then go around just being mean to each other? So exclusively dropping truth bombs on each other? Must we always be cruel to be kind? No, Paul is clear in verse 18. Being made much of is not the problem. Paul speaks kindly to others. Indeed, he goes on to call them his little children. He calls the Philippians his beloved brothers that he longs for, his joy and his crown. The Corinthians he calls his letter of commendation, enriched with all knowledge, not lacking in any gift. Paul is not above speaking kindly of others when it's true. What Paul won't do is engage in baseless flattery to get what he wants. He won't be a people pleaser. But that doesn't mean he won't be an encourager, one who builds up believers rather than tearing them down. You see, Paul is like a father to them, isn't he? But fathers who only ever discipline and never praise their children are not very good fathers, are they? These false teachers, though, only want to praise in order that they might get praise back in return. It's ultimately selfish on their part. They want it for themselves, a, a sort of back-scratching arrangement. But Paul is having none of that, and neither should we. Yes, we should be encouragers, but not at the expense of the truth, and not for an ulterior motive, trying to gain power or influence over people, trying to further a particular theological stance. 
using people rather than loving people. Paul didn't see these people as fodder to be won over to a particular side of an argument. He saw them as precious souls, as precious children, precious people. Do we see people that way? Or do we just view people to be won over to our side? Well, he said Paul's like a father to them. Well, actually, Paul uses a slightly different image. And we'll see that as we move to our final point, anguished mothers. Verses 19 and 20. Let me read that to you again. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul is perplexed. He's at a loss of what to do with them. What they have done is so counter to all reasonableness. And yet he cares for them as a mother. Paul uses this kind of image a few times in scripture. They are his little children, his beloved ones. He pictures himself as a nursing mother in Thessalonians. Only here the picture is not quite so sweet. He pictures himself as a mother in the midst of childbirth. Now having been there for the birth of my two boys, I can testify that childbirth is not an easy process. I'm sure if Caroline were here she would agree. Um, But it is painful, hard and exhausting. I found out this week that childbirth can burn more calories than running a marathon. It's a hard thing to go through. And the really shocking thing in what Paul talks about here is that he talks about himself being again in the pains of childbirth. He's already done it once. Can you imagine a few months after giving birth, as Paul is metaphorically here, Imagine being told, I'm sorry, but the baby hasn't been quite born properly. Um, They've actually began to crawl back up into the birth canal. You're going to have to go into labour again so that they're born properly. If Becky were here, I'd be telling her not to worry. Uh, That doesn't happen in real life. But in Paul's metaphor, it has. Paul's been through childbirth with them once. And now he's having to go through all that pain and anguish again to see Christ formed in them. It's like having to go back to the start and start all over again with them. No wonder he's perplexed. I say that doesn't happen in real life, but it does. Not in real childbirth, but in ministry. All of us are involved in one way or another with gospel ministry. Seeing Christ formed in other people, in in one another. Encouraging one another, building one another up. Speaking the truth in love to one another. Investing in one another's lives for the sake of the gospel. To see Christ formed in other people's lives. (coughs) And like labour, that can be hard, painful and exhausting at times. But it's the work that we're all called to as believers. In Ephesians, Paul writes this. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In those verses, pastors are there to equip churches to do that, to equip it to build itself up, to pastor one another, to minister to one another. And as we do that, as we invest our lives, do you know what? We'll joyfully see one another pressing on. That's one of the big encouragements as you get involved with that ministry. But it will also mean that you'll see people going backwards 
And the more that we're invested in people, in the gospel, the more that will break our hearts. You see, the work of ministry in many ways is very much like being a parent. You know, children can bring parents such happiness, can't they? Because of how much parents love their children, actually they're the people that can bring them the most hurt and pain as well. As we see them making life choices that will damage themselves and others, as we see them going the wrong direction. And that's how Paul feels about the Galatians. He's perplexed, devastated, heartbroken that they're abandoning him. But not only him, the gospel he preached. But Paul is determined to bring them back. Even if it means going through the pains of labour again. He loves them so much that he would go through that for them. He will tell them the hard truth if it means that they would push on to maturity rather than going backwards. If Christ would be formed in them. If they would grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see, it's easy to give up on people, isn't it? To write them off. But Paul won't. He cares too much for them. Do we care that much about one another? Will we stand by and watch as people go backwards? Or will we set our hands to the plough and help? Even if it might be painful and hard and costly. Would you rather be brother to your fellow sons and daughters? Or a slave to your own shyness and sluggishness? Paul would rather be a mother all over again if it means a future for the Galatians, if it means Christ will grow in them and they make it to glory. Do we share that devotion for our fellow believers? Because Paul was not Christ. He was a man like you or I. He was not Superman. But he serves as an example of what Christian experience looks like, of what life as a disciple consists of. Become like me, says Paul in verse 12. Will we take up Paul's challenge? Can we say, I'd rather be like Paul as he is like Christ? Yes, I would. If I only could, I surely would. Well, let's pray that God would give us the strength to do that, to love and care for one another and minister to one another, that we might make it to the end. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Father, thank you for the way that he cared for the Galatians. And so, Father, help us as we seek to minister to one another. Help us to love one another sincerely from the heart. And, Father, pray that we would speak the truth in love to one another, that we might grow up into Christ and, Father, make it into glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.